Welcome to the Radically Christian Bible Study Podcast. I'm Travis Pauley, and here we have one goal, learn to love like Jesus. I hope you enjoy this study. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Bible Study Podcast. Wes, back in the studio. Hello again. Mr. Kirkwood. Hello. Is it doctor? <laughs> no, yeah. no, I'm not a doctor. Will it be? That's the plan, at least, okay. if all things go right. I'll I'm preemptively cur- call you doctor. That's technically a crime in some places. Uh, well, yeah, don't call, the, yeah, don't call him. Yeah, don't But not in the studio. You could call him Professor Kirkwood because that's been his Kirkwood. nickname for there we a long go. time. Yeah. Yeah. No, he's not technically for. a professor. He's working. You're working on your master's? Yes, I'm working on my master's in divinity. So can we call you Master Kirkwood when you get your master's? Once you get, yeah. once I get my master's degree, yes, the, my official title would be Master Kirkwood. Which I wonder why we don't use that very often. Like when somebody has a master's degree, we typically don't call yeah. them I'd Master like, I'd like or, that. Yeah. I think it's mostly because the phrase master has negative connotations uh, in our culture. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Unless you're a yeah. Jedi. Good point. Yeah, yes. that's true. That's yeah. true. Actually, I had a professor who had just had her master's degree. She was my our general psychology professor. And she said, my name is Master Bonner. Don't call me doctor because that's the other guy at this department. Huh. And it's a crime. Yeah. <laughs> and so she always had like a little Star Wars paraphernalia peppered nice. in her classroom nice just she, because just to play up that i reference yeah. yes That's well now we have master classes that people can take uh, online <laughs> and so yeah. yeah but i don't and know today, that those people are actually masters they're just calling themselves that yeah they're pseudo pseudo masters and today we're doing a master class yes a master class on worship on worship thank you for bringing us back because that was about I'm, to be a rabbit trail i'm the it? master of segues nice nice yes. good nice segue <laughs> Yeah, we would have had had to restart the recording if if you didn't do that. Yeah, that's true. We would have gone down the rabbit hole. Uh, So we have a question from Kevin who asked a great question, and it's especially relevant because of the pandemic and everything that's been going on with that. But he says this, there have been a lot of talks about worship these days, especially with everything going on with social distancing and virtual lessons. Some believe that since all five acts are not present, then it's not worship. I personally have my concerns about the five acts. Shouldn't God be worshiped every day? Could you just explain a little bit about what worship actually is? Thank you. Great question, Kevin. I really appreciate this. I, I know this is something that we struggle with, especially in Churches of Christ. Um, we have labeled certain acts as the acts of worship. Um, those are singing, praying, taking the Lord's Supper, communing, uh, giving, and preaching. So those five things that um, are biblical things, things we find in the New Testament, we have labeled those the five acts of worship as just kind of shorthand to say these are the the kinds of things that we should be doing. These are the only things we should be doing in our worship assembly. Um, But unfortunately, that idea has been confused, I think, and talked about in a strange way. Um, And so people wonder, well, wait, am I worshiping? As Kevin asked, you know, isn't somebody worshiping when they're praying or singing at home? I mean, if I'm I'm singing a song to God at home by myself or with my family, is that not worship? Or is worship only what we do as the assembly? And, And here's where I think that we need to start the conversation at least, that we speak English at least the three of us do, and maybe some other languages. I don't know what else y'all speak, but, um, but, but we speak English. And so with, with that fact comes the fact that we don't speak Greek or Hebrew, and we don't speak something else. We're speaking English. And so we have an English word, 
And what we might mean by worship might be the same as what the biblical authors meant when they used other words, Greek words or Hebrew words, and and it might not. And there might be some overlap and there might be some differences. And how I might use an English word like worship might be different than how someone else uses the English word worship and how the English word worship has changed over time it has some bearing on this. In fact, the word worship used to be used as a noun. In fact, we've dropped that almost entirely where we only use it as a verb, as something that we do. But originally, the word worship was also a noun. And we still see this maybe in a movie or something where they're talking about royalty and they'll call them your worship, worship. or they'll yeah. say your worshipfulness. You know, they'll call them your worship. And so worship was a noun that said someone was was worthy of respect. Somebody, they would ascribe to them, that they, it was the condition of being worthy. That's what worship means. It was the condition of being worthy. And so you brought up Revelation before we started the recording, and that's what they're doing. They're ascribing worth and value to God. And so there's the verb form of it is to ascribe to a worship, <laughs> worship. You're ascribing to them worth. But it could also mean you have the condition of having worth. So someone could be a worship or could engage in the act of worship. Now, that, that word has evolved and changed over time. We've sort of dropped the noun form of it, and we only use the verb form of it. But what do we mean by worship? Do we mean ascribing to someone worth and value? In that case, any prayer that you offer to God is ascribing to him worth and value, so that would be worship. Um, but but what do we mean by worship? Any thoughts on the English word before we jump into some other things? Um, I remember doing the uh, whenever I was in doing your internship with you uh, a couple of summers ago. Uh, I actually did a study on the word worship uh, for a sermon that I did uh, yeah, to complete right. my yeah, internship. Yeah. And then the word worship, I'm not going to try to do the uh, the old English way of saying it because yeah. I my throat does not make that noise. Right. <laughs> Um, but when you put it, when you in, <laughs> new Englishize it, yeah. it's worthship. Yeah. yeah. So you, so you actually still hear the worthiness yeah. aspect yeah. In, in its ancient etymology. Right. That's just something that I, as someone who really likes looking at older things yeah. and goes, hey, well, that's and, how that came from. And you have a particular interest in Revelation. I do, and, and I really have. do. And, and that, that really is seen, like in Revelation 4 and 5, I mean, you really see that, oh, that yeah. idea of ascribing worth. Right. In uh, Revelation chapter 4, you get this, <laughs> a whole lot of things, but the one I want to point out is the 24 elders, which are human figures that most people believe are a representation of Old and New Testament, 12 yeah. and 12, 24. And they bow down and worship God, saying, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. That that simple phrase of adoration is showing that these 24 elders who have honor in their own rights as being elders are giving worthiness and worship to mm -hmm. God. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, you would have to say that is 
worship, because that's obviously what they're doing. They are telling God that he is worthy. So anytime you offer a prayer, anytime you sing a song where you are ascribing to God worth and you are saying you are worthy to be worshipped, you are worthy to be served, you are worshiping God. And so that that doesn't have to be something that's done. We say corporate worship. I, I don't like that word because of how we use the other ways we use the word corporate. It sounds like business, but it, it just means collective. And so we worship God collectively, but we also worship God individually. And that's a great way to use the word worship. The English word worship is to describe what what the, the elders were doing in Revelation or what we're doing when we pray or when we sing. Another word there would be praise. That, that is very closely associated with how we use the word worship. And so any sort of worship is also praise. But I, I kind of want to get into the Greek just a little bit. Um, Proskuneo is the word that we translate, it is a word that we translate worship. It's not the only word that we translate worship, but proskuneo. But this is a word, Jesus uses it in John 4 when he's talking to the woman at the well, or he's talking to the Samaritan woman, yeah. And he, he talks about worshiping in spirit and in truth. But most of the time that this word is used, in fact, maybe every other time this word is used, it is literally someone falling down, prostrating themselves in front of someone or or to God. They are prostrating themselves and ascribing worth to them, saying, you are worthy, and I'm not. You know, you, you are you're higher than me, and they're giving reverence and falling down in awe of them. So if you want to be really literal, worship or the act of worship or the act of proskuneo is literally to fall down on your face. Now, I do think that we are figuratively, metaphorically proskuneoing. I, I know you can't add an ing to the end of the <laughs> Greek word, but we are we are we are theoretically and in our in our in our spirit we are proskuneo. We are bowing down and and being reverent towards God when we do things like we do in the assembly. But that's not the only time we proscuneo before God, is when we're collectively gathered together. Um, and, and again, if you want to be really technical about it, you would have to literally bodily, physically get on your knees or on your stomach and, and lay down in front of God. That's that's what it literally means to proscuneo. But I think the way Jesus is using the word in John 4, I think that we can pray in a spirit of proscuneo. I think we can sing in a spirit of proscuneo. I think we can take the Lord's Supper in a spirit of proscuneo. I think that's possible, uh, but again, I, I don't think we should limit our English word worship only to uh, those types of things necessarily, because another word that we could translate as worship is latria, latria, um, which really referred to priestly service to God, and I think service is a good word, but I also think worship is a good word. If the priests acting and working in the temple, we're doing this for God, then in a sense, metaphorically again, they are ascribing to God worth and value. They're offering these sacrifices. They're doing these deeds as a way of serving or worshiping God. Um, And so that's another area. But Paul in Romans 12 takes that word and says that offering your entire body, your entire self to God is an act of latria. It is an act of, of 
giving your priestly service to God by offering yourself as a sacrifice, not offering a burnt offering, but offering a living sacrifice, this living sacrifice of your own body. And so in that sense, our entire life becomes an act of service to God, devotion to God. Now that's different. That's something very different than what do we do when we're assembled together. That's very different. But it, but it doesn't change the fact that everything I do should be an act of serving and being devoted to God. So when somebody says, because oftentimes we'll get into these debates or I'll hear these debates, someone will say, no, worship is what we do when we're here on Sunday. And someone else will say, no, worship is everything we do in our life. And it's like, well, you're actually kind of both right in a sense. You're just using two different Greek words. Like you're talking about an act of falling down before God and saying you're worthy, and you're talking about uh, devotion and service to God. There, You could use the word worship if you wanted to for both things. It just is kind of confusing what we mean by that. And that's the problem when we're translating from something from an ancient language into a, a modern language and saying, okay, how are we going to use that word? So when we talk about worship, typically we're talking about an act, a specific act of offering or ascribing to God our devotion and his worth and all of these things. So we're talking about a specific act. We're not talking about our entire life and, and everything that we do, although, again, it's possible to use the word worship to describe our service and devotion to God and everything that we do. When I I treat my children well, I treat my wife well, I treat my neighbor well, and I do so in the name of God, I'm offering myself as a living sacrifice to God, and that is a spiritual act of devotion or service, or again, if you want to use the word worship, you can. So I I think we have to be very careful about playing semantics police and saying, oh, that's worship, that's not worship, that's worship, because again, we're using an English word to describe Greek or Hebrew concepts. We're, we're, we're describing very ancient ideas with a modern English word. Well, I've always said there's kind of a danger in boiling down, you know, the five acts of worship. Like, you know, because I grew I don't know about you guys. I grew up at a five acts of worship church. Uh, it was a very big deal. Um, and, you know, if we don't, like we were talking about before the podcast, if you don't do all five of these things, then it doesn't constitute worship. I think that's the yeah. sort of the definition sure. of it. And I think, I mean, one of the things I've always kind of thought is dangerous about that is it seems like we're looking at the New Testament and the examples we get and we're treating it like it's the book of Leviticus. We're treating it like it's the letter of the law that if we don't, you know, th- th- that it's, that it's, you know, line by line an instruction manual. And I think, you know, you don't have to spend too long with the New Testament to realize that's not, that's not what kind of document we have. Right. Um, there are some pretty clear-cut instructions. There are some pretty uh, clear-cut boundaries, I think, especially when you get into the letters of Paul, um, maybe just because he wrote more than anybody else, and, and eventually he got to those things where it's like, don't do this, or yes, you have to do this. But I think especially when it, in terms of us coming together, if anything, I appreciate the foresight of Scripture and of folks like Paul and when they give us those outlines because I think I think it was left intentionally um, I don't want to I don't think vague is the right word but 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 undefined in terms of you know that they they're and we, we get examples but I think there's you know also the foresight of Christ in establishing his church uh, my people are going to have to worship in all kinds of different ways over the next 
how who who knows how many years and you know i i, I the five acts of worship has always seemed like one to me that has drifted down from tradition uh traditions that may have more than anything been been based on just the logistics of getting people together to worship not something that i see clearly outlined in scripture at all well and i think i think you bring up an interesting point and i think that I, I think that where where we might have a danger, because I, I, I do, I think what I would say is I would say that that I think it would be more appropriate to call these the five acts of the Sunday assembly. Mm-hmm. And I think that I think it's good to essentially limit our assembly to these five things. And I say essentially limit because we also do things like make announcements, and sure. we're all pretty okay with that. And we, but we have this tendency to say, "Well, that's not part of the worship." It's like, well, but it's part of the assembly, and you'd be really hard pressed to to define every single thing in the five acts as quote unquote worship. Again, depending on how you're using that word, because the giving it's not really called that, and and the preaching it's not really called that, and and so you you'd have a really hard time making scripture say that these are acts of quote worship again depending on how loosely or broadly you use that word. I think it's more accurate to say our Sunday assembly should essentially include these elements, and we need to not just be willy-nilly adding sure. things to that. Again, I mean, if, if we have an announcement or the elders want to share some piece of information or... Confession. Certain, what's that? Yeah, oh, absolutely, yeah. Somebody comes forward, repents of sin, that's not included in the five acts of, right. of the assembly. But I, I think essentially our assembly should be limited to these things. And I think it should be because we respect... We respect what what the apostles taught about what happens in the assembly and the importance of the assembly. So essentially, this is what our assembly should look like. And we we see things. So I'll point out a few passages. Um, Acts 20, uh, we have the gathering in Troas. Uh, Paul, I, and I might add that he preached till midnight. So there is a <laughs> biblical precedent for long sermons. So just just in case anybody's wondering out there, mm-hmm. it's only biblical if you preach until somebody falls out the window. Um, <laughs> falls out the window dead. Yeah, well, let's, let's not let's, let's not, not necessarily go there because he, he did survive, you know. But uh, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but but you you have teaching, preaching, giving a speech. It kind of puts it that way. His speech. Uh, extended until midnight, uh, but also the breaking of bread. So they came together for teaching, for breaking bread. In 1 Corinthians 11, he he obviously says that their, their Sunday coming, their gathering together included the Lord's Supper, and he gives them extensive instructions on that and what not to do and how to do it. And then in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, he's very specific about some of the, I would say, limitations on the speaking roles in the assembly. So Paul is very very clear that the assembly should be ordered. It shouldn't be chaotic. In fact, we sometimes take what Paul says about uh, everyone that comes has a song and a hymn and a, and a, something that they want to say, and they have a tongue that they want to speak in, and we we kind of read that as prescriptive, but actually Paul is being descriptive there. He's not t- telling them everybody should have something to say. He's saying, nope, actually, there's going to be a lot of you that have something to say, and y'all just need to be quiet, because only one person at a time, and you're only going to have two or maybe three prophets that speak, and you're only going to have two, maybe three people that speak in tongues, and only if there's a translator, and only the men. And you know, So he's very specific about who speaks and, and when, and it, things need to be done orderly, 
things need to not be chaotic because apparently Corinth was, you know, it was kind of a mess. Uh, Apparently there was all kinds of chaos going on. Everybody was kind of speaking over each other. And he says, no, no, this isn't the way the assembly should be. So I do think there needs to be order. It needs to be limited to the things that that the apostles taught us to do. And so we do see breaking bread. We do see teaching. We do see um, limiting of speaking roles. Um, 1 Corinthians 16, again, we talked before the podcast about how this was something very specific that Paul was gathering up funds for the church in Jerusalem. Uh, but again, I, I think it's good that we we share our, our means when we come together. That's, that's a good thing that that's part of our assembly, and it needs to be something we don't overlook. Because if we overlook that and say, ah, that wasn't really, that's just a first century thing, we don't need to do that anymore, well, then eventually we make it to the point where we're not taking care of the needs of one another or the needs of the work that's going on here. You know, so that does need to be part of our coming together, that we remind each other part of being a part of this community is sharing our funds with each other so that we can do the work of of the church, so that we can take care of one another. So we see taking the Lord's Supper, we see preaching, we see contributing, we see singing, and we see prayers. Paul's instructions in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, again, we've kind of parsed that to death, but but Paul does talk about singing to each other. So all of these things were, were not wrong to say this is essentially what the first century assembly looked like, but we are wrong to say that assembly is the only place or time you can worship. That's wrong. And I think that we could add things to what is worship or an act of worship, again, how broadly or loosely or narrowly you define that word, but I'd, I'd be hard-pressed to say why fasting isn't worship, and we see that oftentimes. It's not, a, it's not a weekly thing. It's not a part of every assembly, but it's an occasional act of worship. You're doing it proscuneo. You're doing it in reverence to God as an act of sacrificing your own appetite, your own food, for the sake of seeking God and His will. So that that's a first-century thing, but we, we haven't added that as a sixth act of worship. So again, I think we have to be very careful— in, in calling these five acts of worship. Again, I think it's more accurate to say these are the five acts of the Sunday Assembly, and I do think that the Sunday Assembly is a sacred time for us to come together, for us to edify each other, encourage each other, teach each other, sing to each other, share the bread and the cup together, all of these things, and, and we shouldn't just add things willy-nilly to it, and it doesn't need to become chaotic, and it's not just open to whatever we want to do, but again, acting like it's only worship if we do these things, because if we come together on a Wednesday night and we sing, we're worshiping, even though we're not taking the Lord's Supper and we're not you know, doing all of these other things, but it's still worship. And if I'm at home with my family and I'm singing songs, it's still worship. It's not the Sunday assembly, but it's still worship. Um, and so I think we have to be very carefully, very careful about using terms like this, because even though it was a fine term, five acts of worship, it it has caused people to limit what worship is to only what happens on Sunday and to feel like they're not worshiping if all of those things aren't present and neither of those things find biblical support. Uh, Worship can be done at any place or time. We don't have to go to the mountain or to the temple. That's what the John 4 text is all about. It's not about where you are or when you are. You can worship God anytime you're in the Spirit. You can worship God anytime in truth. And so this worship can happen anytime. But the assembly, the coming together of God's people on the first day of the week is an important and sacred time. And I do think, you know, to some degree, it needs to be limited to these things within reason. Yeah, I think... I think there's. I think you're missing out if if you ritualistic, you know, to look at worship in it's sort of a ritualistic way. In terms, of, I was just thinking about like 
the idea that you if you don't hit all these five things, if you hit four and not five, if you you know if three and not five, you didn't do it. If you do six out of five, you know then you you know something's wrong here. You didn't you didn't complete the level. You yeah. know you didn't, and that's like that's I think you're missing out. It's like you and and to your point, it's like you know okay that those are some good things for us to do when we come together when we're in the corporate worship because Mm -hmm. obviously maybe the lesson to pick up on paul's uh instruction there is is be organized because you know we also know you don't get things you don't get too much done in pure chaos Mm -hmm. but i think framing it in that ritualistic way for yourself that binding way it's like you miss out on like I, th- I think you miss out on the spirit in other areas of your life. You yeah. know, the, the the worship that you can have by yourself. I yeah. mean, I I remember one of our members, Steve Ellis, years ago, and I was already kind of doing this, but it, it it encouraged me so much when he said that he does this. You know, prays in the car. You know, when he's driving by himself. Yeah. And yeah. pray out loud. It's just one of those few moments where you can you can talk to your you know you can yeah. you just by yourself talk out loud and nobody's right. gonna look at you too crazy yeah except when you're stopped at a stop, stop sure um but you know do that or sing hymns in the car yeah. or like those and the way he put it on the what really encouraged me was your captive audience it's like that's a it's a it's one of the rare times and yet we do it every day you know i mm-hmm. drive every day so it's like it's 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 one of those times in our culture today where i'm a captive audience where i can i can be alone with God. Yeah, I'm sort of right. driving on autopilot and I'm engaging in, 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 in an opportunity to worship yeah. to. And so again, I think becoming overly ritualistic with the way we think about uh, our duties as Christians in any way, it can really make us miss out on the whole scope of, uh, you know, of, of what God intended for us to experience yeah. and been, be benefited by um and these in these these acts that he set up it's one thing to outline that that might be one way we we think about it. It, it it's one thing to outline what the first century assembly looked like and i think that's a pretty good outline i think it's a, a fairly accurate outline to outline hey this is what they they came together to do and it's another thing to turn it into a checklist and i think that's what we end up doing is turning yeah. it into a checklist and and you're right it becomes it becomes very ritual. It has the tendency to be. And sure. I'm not saying that everybody who thinks about it this way is ritualistic, or you know, they've 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 missed the heart of it. But I think that we we feel like we've completed our tasks rather than understanding well what was the task. And the way Paul would put it in First Corinthians 14 is that the goal is edification. And sometimes we think that we're checking all of these things off because God isn't pleased with me unless I check all these things off the the box. And I mean, I don't want to, you know, move too far away from that and act like it's not for God. It is for God. It is in devotion to God. But again, every part of my life is for God. <laughs> it should be. The reason I'm doing this is for God. The reason I'm helping my neighbor is for God. The reason I'm doing all of these things is a response to what God has done for me. And so all of those things should be acts of 
priestly service, everything that we do, the, the uniqueness of the assembly is that we're doing this for the edification of, of the brothers and sisters. That's what Paul says, let everything be done for edification. The purpose of the assembly, the purpose of breaking bread and drinking the cup isn't so God is pleased with me another week. <laughs> the purpose of breaking the bread and drinking the cup is to edify one another. It's to be edified, sure, but also to edify one another. And I think, back to your point, Travis, that I think that one of the things that we we miss when we turn it into a checklist is we we forget that it's not just to get through this stuff, come in and punch my time clock and, and get through the hour. The point is to come and to encourage and to edify my brothers and sisters. And, you know, again, I, I think that right now, I think it's relevant to speak to the fact that so many Christians across the world are are worshiping virtually. Is it still worship? Absolutely. But is something missing? Absolutely. And can, I, I mean, I there's so many things that you can compare this to. I mean, I, I compare it a lot to the fact that the New Testament teaches us every church needs elders. When Paul and, and his traveling companions would go through a city and they'd teach the gospel, they would come back through and they would appoint elders in every town, in every city. And so every church needs elders. So is it a New Testament imperative for every church to have elders? Yes, absolutely. Every church needs elders. And there's already somebody listening saying, wait a second, we don't have any men qualified to be elders. And I'd say, I know. And it's tough, isn't it? And so we can admit on the one hand, this needs to happen. This must happen. And on the other hand, also admit at the same time, it can't happen right now. And that's that's a tension we have to live with sometimes to say, this church needs elders, but we don't have elders right now. So we're working towards that. And so we can hold in tension, I think, the fact that if there's a snowstorm or there's a pandemic or there's whatever, this can't happen right now, at least not the way we normally do it. But at the same time, it needs to happen. And we have to hold both of those intentions to say, this is still important. And by saying, hey, let's go online for a, a bit, we're not saying it's suddenly not important anymore. It's still important. We're not saying suddenly it's not necessary anymore. It's still necessary. And we have to find any way and every way we can to edify each other, build each other up, be with each other, encourage one another, call one another, whatever, because that's the primary purpose of our assembly. It's not to go down a checklist, but when we reduce, when it, when instead of outlining the assembly, we reduce the assembly to five checkboxes, then it becomes something it was never intended to be. It was intended to be the edification of the church. And if for some reason a church doesn't have elders, or if for some reason they can't come together on the first day of the week, physically embodied in the flesh, there's going to be there's going to be a cost to that, and it's going to hurt. I think we have to admit that and acknowledge that and say, this stinks, and this isn't the way it should be, and it, we need to be back together in the flesh. But in the meantime, we're going to be patient, and we're going to hold on, and we're going to wait and, and go through those things, But and we're going to find any way we can to supplement to supplement our singing and our praying and our, our breaking the bread and drinking the cup and encouraging each other, because that's the primary purpose of the assembly anyway, is to edify one another. Yeah, one of those things that, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, one of those things that is really interesting to me is this, um, uh, this little, this kind of a paradigm that you were describing is um, especially prevalent in the first century church even of um, the, the martyrs, the, the men and women who died for their faith. Uh, we don't get to see much of it in uh, the New Testament, but what we do see is very interesting and very telling. Um, in, uh, when 
Paul and Silas and Timothy uh, go, Paul, Silas, Timothy, and probably Luke uh, went down to Philippi. Uh, they were spreading the gospel and had a pretty solid following. We have uh, women like Lydia, and they were creating an assembly of the Lord there. Mm-hmm. Then Paul uh, expelled a demon uh, uh, from a poor slave woman, and and before you know it, Paul and Silas, the two preachers and teachers who are the de facto leaders of this assembly of the Lord, are thrown in prison. Mm-hmm. That didn't stop them from worshiping God. In fact, right. it was because of their worshiping God, of singing and and, uh, and giving hymns to God, that the that they added an entire family of new converts yeah, in the form of the uh, in the form of the Philippian jailer. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, and I think I think you'd be hard pressed to to have Paul not describe what they were doing in that prison cell as worship. Right, and then if you want to go into the uh, stories outside of the Bible of the of the Christians, the faithful. Uh, you get this really awesome uh, bits of pieces of information of them going. We don't have the scriptures anymore because we're in here in rags, uh, in these prison cells with in rags. We don't have the elements to uh, take the Lord's Supper because, well, we're in rags, about to be fed to lions or whatever nasty yeah. fate awaits us. But they were still worshiping God by singing, praising God. Mm-hmm. And praying in every way that they could, they did. Yeah. And there's no doubt in any Christian's mind that these people, these men and women who died for their faith, worshipped God all the way to the end. Yeah. Well, and that, that's such a terrific point. And and I think that we have to we have to see and appreciate the fact that there have been these kind of moments that are outside of the norm, outside of the the regular, outside of the ideal, outside of what you want them to be throughout history, and and Christians have made do in any way they can and supplemented and did whatever they could in those moments. But but I think that one of the casualties of of this sort of checklist thinking, and I've, I've experienced it as a minister, that there have been many times I will take communion to somebody who is shut in and who can't co- go to the assembly, and I, I've known people that that won't take the communion, um, and and I obviously would never want them to violate their conscience in in that way. But but also people that feel like maybe they're not going to be saved because they haven't been able to complete all of the five acts of worship, as if by completing all the five acts of worship each week they're somehow ensuring their salvation. And so they are lying there in a hospital bed or or at home shut in and unable to to be with the the rest of the the church family. And they're afraid that they haven't listened to preaching and they haven't been in the prayers and they haven't taken the Lord's Supper with the church family and they haven't sung the songs with them and they haven't gone through the checklist that that somehow maybe they're lost now and and just in tears worried for their eternal security and that is a heartbreaking thing that that we have interpreted scripture in such a way that we feel like by going down this checklist that somehow we're ensuring our salvation now <laughs> Even in just saying that, there's going to be some people say, well, are you saying it's not important? Of course not. Of course not. It's incredibly important. Should we do it? Absolutely, we should do it. But there are times where somebody is in a prison cell, or there are times where somebody is shut in at home. You know, when I was worshiping, and now we're back and having in-person services for the most part, but 
there were several weeks, many weeks, a lot of a lot of months that weeks. Yeah, I know it was months, wasn't it? Travis had to to create the, the seven pre-recorded. years. Yeah, seven years. <laughs> it definitely feels like that. Forty years in the wilderness. But I mean, there was a sense in which I've kind of felt like my family and I were part of the diaspora. You know, I, I kind of felt like we had been scattered. And and there's there's something there's something horrible about that, but there's also something reassuring that that this has been the experience of God's people for a very, very long time, that that through famine or through war or through exile or through whatever, they've been scattered, but we're doing everything we can in those moments to continue to remember who we are and to continue to celebrate our story that we're a part of. And that's what the assembly is all about. And so we'll gather with one, we'll gather with two, we'll gather with a thousand if we can. We'll gather as big or as small as we need to, and and we will do everything we can every single week to celebrate and remember who we are, whose we are, and what we're supposed to be doing. I thought it would be really good to, as we kind of wrap up, to, to read from Justin Martyr, who wrote in the second century, and I'm, I'm really glad that you brought up the martyrs and, and brought up uh, the way that, that they may do in, in whatever situation. And here he's just describing the, the normal Sunday. And he said, on the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together in one place, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. Then when the reader has ceased, the president verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. And their president just means the person presiding over the service. So again, I mean, it's, it's hard to read what Justin Martyr writes and think and not think, that sounds a whole lot like what we are still doing 2,000 years later. So someone would get up and would read from the prophets or from the apostles, and then they would ex- instruct and exhort to imitate these good things, live this way, do these things. Then we all rise together and pray. And as we before said, when our prayer is ended, bread and wine and water are brought, and the president in like manner offers prayers and thanksgivings according to his ability, and the people assent, saying, Amen. And there is a distribution to each and a participation of that over which thanks has been given. And to those who are absent, a portion is sent by the deacons. Again, I, I want to stop there for a second, too, and acknowledge the importance and significance of the breaking bread, sharing the cup in their togetherness, but also in the taking it to others that weren't there, and that the deacons would take a portion of the Lord's Supper to those that couldn't gather. And they who are well, they who are well-to-do and willing, give that each give what each thinks fit, and what is collected is deposited with the president who takes care of the orphans and widows and those who through sickness or any other cause are in want, and those who are in bonds and the strangers sojourning among us, and in a word takes care of all who are in need. So again, all of the things that we're talking about in this outline of praying and giving and Lord's Supper and preaching, I mean, all of these are part of the first century assembly and even in the second century when Justin Martyr is writing. He says, but Sunday is the day on which we hold our common assembly because it is the first day on which God, having wrought a change in the darkness and matter, made the world and Jesus Christ, our Savior, on the same day rose from the dead. So, this is what Christians have always done. They've always come together in as big or as small gatherings as they possibly could. They've broken bread, shared the bread, shared the cup with one another. They've prayed, they've sung, they've preached and taught one another, and they've shared their their means with each other. 
These are the basic elements, the basic outline of the Christian assembly since the very beginning, and we're continuing in that pattern today. And I I love that, and it ties us to God's people throughout all time. But that's not to say that you're not worshiping when you're at home and you sing or you pray, or like you said, Travis, driving in your car. All of these things are acts of worship, just as they are when we're together. But coming together, this is what we do when we come together. And it's biblical, it's important, and it's life-changing. I really hope you enjoyed this Bible study, and I hope you'll subscribe to hear future episodes of the podcast. A big thank you to Travis Pauly, as well as our McDermott Road Church family for helping to make this podcast possible. And a special thanks to all of you for listening. We love you, God loves you, and we hope you have a wonderful day.